The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Matisyahu Devlin now presents his lecture, From Altar Boy to Chabad Rabbi. When I was growing up in southern Pennsylvania, a small town called York, one of 11 siblings, we were all raised in the Catholic Church. My mother is Jewish, however, at the time she was wholly unobservant. And my father is a devout Roman Catholic, meaning he's, he's very religious. He would take us to church every Sunday. We all attended Catholic school from pre-K through, through high school. We went to church on all the holy days of obligation. We went to confession. We did everything you were meant to do as a Catholic. We said grace before meals. We were always embarrassed out in public because and we'd, we'd be out at a restaurant whether it be fast food or a fancy place, and, and you know we'd all have to fold our hands and, and, uh, and say grace before meals, which just seemed a little embarrassing for us at times, but that was life. We were a, a uh, religious Catholic family. Now, as far as Judaism goes, it wasn't really much in regards to Yiddishkeit. We did celebrate Hanukkah each year, but that was always for mom. We always felt we were respecting mom and her culture, her religion. And so we celebrate all these holidays and, and things throughout the year, especially in the wintertime. So we, we stand around the menorah with mom and we, we share in, in her, in her you know, upbringing, her culture. And it was something nice, different. None of our friends celebrated Hanukkah, obviously. And you know, we'd sing this Hebrew song with some Hebrew words that we don't know. And we would take turns each day lighting the menorah. So. Not everyone got a chance each year, so there was, you were kind of bummed if, you, if it was, you didn't get a turn that year to light the menorah. But that was, uh, that was the extent of our Judaism, something that was mom's culture that she shared with us. But as far as we went, we were Catholic. And we were very involved. My siblings and I, we were all altar boys. We sang in the choir. We would uh, read the, the readings at the Sunday Mass, any other volunteer work that was needed. My father as a doctor served on some of the boards uh, in the church. So we were you know, a respected family, uh, kind of a poster family of, uh, of our parish, of our community. Now I was, was pretty involved in, in, my, in my Catholic faith personally from among my siblings. And even as I got into my teenage years, when I would say most of my friends you know, didn't really care so much about their Catholic identity, it was still something important to me. And there was a kind of a struggle in my life at that time because on one hand, I was becoming like the rebel in my class. I was a skater, I was a stoner. I was like kind of in that kind of life. But, but on the other hand, I was like still trying to maintain my, my moral you know, upbringing as a Catholic and I still maintained my involvement in the church more than just my father's you know, mandatory, you have to go to mass with us on Sunday. I still felt to be involved. At a certain point, as I'm kind of juggling these, uh, these two things, I felt a pull towards exploring other religions. 
And to me, even other branches of Christianity was like a whole new religion to me because the way I was raised, Catholicism was the, you know, the one and only true thing and even other versions of Christianity are, are, are completely wrong. So I, I started to go to um, kind of a more uh, passionate, exciting form of Christianity where I w actually I played drums for their, what they call the worship team or the worship band. And I would have to go to church twice on Sunday because for my father, their service didn't count. So I'd have to go, I'd wake up early to go to the Catholic mass and then afterwards I would, I'd be, I would go to the, to the other church to play drums for them. And at a certain point, I just gave up on Christianity. I, I explored and dabbled in this and that. And I felt that it's just not, I don't know if I would say it's not true. I just felt it wasn't for me. There must be something else out there. So I spent my high school years between, you know, between getting high and skating and between drumming. I'm a, I'm a percussionist and I, I played in everything. I was in marching band. I was in uh, local, I played in the local professional symphony orchestra and I had my own rock bands and everything and jazz band. So between all, you know, my other normal things I was doing as a teenager, I was exploring other religions, other cultures, other philosophies. And I can't say I got so into the nitty gritty depths of it. I was a teenager. But just this notion that I felt there was something more in my life that wasn't there at the time. I got to senior year of high school. Miraculously, somehow I, I, I made it. And my senior year, I thought, after really sh straighten up, I had been getting into a lot of trouble. And I thought, I really need to just get out of here. I could keep my head down this year, stay out of trouble. I had good grades, I had good SAT scores. I'll go to some school, I'll pick a school far away. And, uh, you know, new, new place, you know, fresh, fresh start. It didn't work out too well because a few months into the school year, I'll set like a timeline here. This was November of 2008. I was 18 years old. I was called down to the disciplinarian's office. In fact, the disciplinarian actually came up to class. I remember I, w I was in a business economics class and the, the disciplinarian himself came to take me to his office and he starts searching my pockets and my backpack and was looking for whatever substance he thought I had, which I was not stupid enough to have in school. And ended up finding, a, I had a, a small pocket knife. I'd also been a Boy Scout at some point. So I, I carried like a little Swiss Army knife with me. Which at the time, if you remember at the time, having like a pocket knife in a small town in Pennsylvania, I mean, I had friends that had their shotguns in their cars, you know, like. So, since I was not the most uh, liked student in the school, they kind of used this as a pretext to, to expel me from school. And not only that, but they called the police. I was arrested. And my parents were mortified, of course. I soon found myself no longer residing with my parents. And I was then, I was renting my own apartment, which I was evicted from. And I was fired from the job I was working. And really my life was just, you know, started going even worse than it was until now. So at that point I realized I have to just leave. I had a little bit of money saved up. I sold whatever I had of value. I got in my car and started driving. And I didn't even tell anyone. I figured people would stop me. But I knew I have to do this. I have to get out of here. I have to find out about the world. I have to find about my place in the world. I have to figure out who I am, where do I belong, where do I fit in. And I didn't really have much of a plan. I didn't really know what it is I wanted to do. I had just read um, On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Anyone who's familiar, that was, that was, like, that was what I was reading. I was trying to live with that. 
And I thought, I'm, I'm going to do what he does. You know, I'm just going to, uh, you know, I'll work as a, as a farmhand in the Midwest, and, uh, and I'll just do whatever. Wherever I go, I'll figure things out to make a little cash to move on to the next town, you know, just explore the world. No one's stopping me, you know. So I don't get very far from home. I made it to New York City, which is about, I don't know, maybe five-hour drive tops from York, Pennsylvania. But, you know, coming from a small town, I never traveled very much. I had a big family, so we never really went anywhere. To me, it was like going to China. I don't think I had Five hours was one of the furthest places I'd ever been from, from, uh, from my home, other than going to Disney World as a kid, you know. So I'm in New York, exciting place. I'm just partying and just doing whatever I feel. I go through all my money. One night when I was planning to sleep in my car, which was my residence most nights, my car was not where I left it. And I find out that it was impounded, and there's whatever fee to get it out, and every day they add an additional fine. I had no money, so that was, I was officially homeless at that point, if you will. One night, I, I seek refuge in a Starbucks. This is now, this is probably the end of February, beginning of March 2009. I'd been living on the streets for a few weeks in, in New York. And I walk into a Starbucks, it's open 24 hours, you know, safe, warm place. So I put my head down at a table to sleep. I wake up a few hours later, and there's a teenage boy and girl at the table next to me, maybe a little younger than I was. And this boy, has a, he has a yarmulke on his head. Now, I knew this was like a, a Jewish thing that Jewish people wore. I had no idea that this was something that was still done. To me, Jewish things were like, ancient. It was like very old. No one does them anymore. Like I knew my mother. My mother was probably the only Jewish person I actually knew and, and my, you know, my bubby. Um, but I never actually really met Jewish people. There's not, not too many Jews in York, Pennsylvania. So when I see, I see this young man with a kippah on his head, it was like the most foreign thing to me. But I thought, okay, he's obviously a Jew. My mother's a Jew. I'll start a conversation with him. I've always been, I've always been very good at just talking to anyone, anytime, place. So I say, hey, what's up, man? You're, uh, you're Jewish? And he says, yeah, obviously. And I said, oh, cool, cool. Um, you know, my mom, she's a Jew also. So he looks at me and he says, so you're Jewish? I said, me? No, like I was baptized and, you know, I went to Catholic school and church. I mean, I don't really believe in that stuff anymore. I told him, I said, I don't even know if I believe in God, but, you know, but I'm not Jewish. In my mind, it's really a little bit deeper than that because the way that I grew up, we'll, we'll just say that no one, no one aspired to be a Jew. There was kind of a totem pole. There was a hierarchy of society. And as Catholics, we were the cream of the crop on top. That's it. And below that were the, well, basically below that, everyone was burning in hell. But there was still, there was still a certain, like, the other Christians were also going to burn in hell, but they're, they're just below. And then you have other, you know, people who are good people and moral people and, and, you know, man's best friend, dogs, eventually. And then you get to Jews. And, no, really, I mean, I can't say people were so openly anti-Semitic, but th there was this, this very obvious undertone or overtone of, of you know, that Jews were, were lower than everyone else. And we were, I was always reminded of this, you know, telling Jew jokes and Holocaust jokes were a very regular, normal thing as, as teenagers. Obviously, teenagers learned this from somewhere. They, they weren't on Twitter learning these jokes back then, you know. This was, uh, overhear it from, from the adults. There were a lot of kids in my school 
everyone was basically, you could tell from the last names, was either Italian, Irish, or German. And you knew. I went to York Catholic. You familiar? So, okay, that's good. It's nice. Not too many people familiar with uh, York Catholic. Uh, even for Catholic schools, it's a pretty small one. Oh, wonderful. Wow, very nice. Okay. Lechaim to the 717. That's how small we are. We have the same, the same area code. Like 10 cities have the same area code. So it's very different when I moved to New York. Just Brooklyn had you know, four area codes. So those friends of mine who were of German ancestry, you know, they made it pretty well known, you know, what their families were involved in or, or what they at least liked to think their families had been involved in. Many of them had been in America many generations already. But whenever Holocaust, whenever World War II came up, inevitably every school year, whether in social studies or maybe in religion class as more of a moral thing, it came up. And those friends of mine were very ready to say how they had a great uncle or a someone, or someone's cousin, or a, everyone had to find some relative of theirs that was a Nazi. And you know, almost as if it was a sense of pride. And I even had friends that, one or two friends that I remember in, the, in their homes, they still had the paraphernalia that belonged to their, uh, you know, great grandfathers or whatever it was, the red armband and, and everything like that. So growing up in a place like that, you could imagine, even myself, not, I, I didn't harbor any feeling, ill feelings towards Jewish people, but when someone was going to now suggest to me that I'm a Jew, I'm like, like, no, thank you. Like, no, it's, not, it's not who I am. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a part of that. So he says to me, he says, listen, it's baptism and church and, and that stuff. As a Jew, that doesn't really matter. As long as your mother's Jewish, you're a Jew. Your mother has a Jewish soul. And when she gave birth to you, she passed on a Jewish soul to you. I was kind of taken aback by that. It was not something I would expect to hear. And it was, you know, Something kind of uh, captured me by that. So many 18 years, you know, growing up in the Catholic Church, and it never spoke a whole lot about, about a soul or, or a type of soul, a Jewish soul. It just sounded interesting. It piqued my interest. So we're talking for a little while, and mostly um, I'm just looking for the opportunity when I can get the handout and ask it for a few bucks or, you know, a coffee or something, a bed to sleep in. And in the course of our conversation, he's just going on and on telling me, you know, the ABCs, maybe all the way to Z, about Judaism. And we spoke for hours and hours until it was already morning. And at a certain point, he tells me that I should go to this uh, place called 770. He says, you know, if you're a Jew, and you're not really sure, you know, uh, you know what, what you're meant to do in life, you should go to this place called 770, and everything will work out. So, like some people here are wondering what is 770. I didn't have a clue what it was. I thought he was going to tell me about some type of homeless shelter, some type of like, I don't know, like Jewish halfway house. I don't know. I don't know what he's going to tell me about. To me, at that point, I wasn't like, I didn't want to go to any type of, uh, any type of uh, you know, homeless shelter or anything like that because I felt that would mean like, okay, like I'm definitely homeless. I'm like, I'm definitely like, you know, a certain stigma that goes with it. To me, I was just stuck. I was kind of in a rut and I just needed to figure out a way to just get out of it and get out of New York and move on to my next uh, destination. So I say, what is this? What's, what's this place? He tells me, oh, it's one of the main synagogues of the whole world. You go there, it's in Brooklyn. You get on the three train, get off on Kingston Avenue. And he describes for me what it looks like. He says it's a huge synagogue. I'm telling you, go there and uh, just tell someone there that you're Jewish and, and 
everything's going to work out. I thought it sounds really wild, but uh, okay, let's, let's, see, let's see what's going on over there. I've never, been in, I've never been to a synagogue. Maybe it could be interesting. So I get off the subway in Brooklyn in Crown Heights, and I see this big building, a bunch of guys with, he told me, there'd be a bunch of guys with black hats and beards, and uh, I have no idea what that, what that was, it even mean black hat. Now I know what he meant, obviously. But I, sure enough, I see a bunch of guys with fedoras, you know, wearing you know, suits and fedoras, and, and it's very interesting. Beards I knew because at the time, even before it was cool to have a beard, you know, York, Pennsylvania, you have, you have a lot of uh, bikers and you know, lots of people's beards. The Amish are nearby. Beards I was used to. So I walk into this building, and I'm just kind of in what's like the lobby, not really sure what do you do in a synagogue. I don't have a clue. I don't know, what do I do here? There's a lot of people coming in and out. I don't know, within 30 seconds, some guy accosts me, starts speaking to me in some foreign language, and I'm standing there with like shoulder-length hair, I have ripped jeans, and not because I was homeless, but that was my, that was my style, that's how, I, that's how I dressed. This guy grabs me by the arm, and he's speaking to me in some foreign, you know, babble, and I said, hey dude, uh, do you speak English? I don't know what you're saying. And he says, ah, no, 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 uh, cover your head. And I'm like, never really sure exactly what he means. So he takes me into the, into the synagogue itself, and he finds a yarmulke from someone, puts it on my head. And he looks at me and he says, No, uh, tefillin, tefillin. And I'm like, I, I don't even know what to respond. I, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to, like, I, I don't know what he said. What does it even mean? Like, so I'm just staring at him blankly. And he says, No, tefillin. Like making the sign language as if I'm supposed to understand that. So he does that a few times, and each time he's like wrapping his arm around his hand more vigorously. And I'm like, at a certain point, I'm like, dude, I don't have a clue what you're trying to say. Tell me in English. I'm happy to oblige. Just like, tell me what you want. So he says, uh, just a second, you're Jewish? I said, I don't know, man. This guy in Starbucks told me last night I'm a Jew. <laughs> so he says, wow, Jew not fill in, best day of your life. I'm thinking to myself, I saw this free coffee and cookies in the lobby. <laughs> Definitely one of the best days of my life right now. So he asked me, is your mother Jewish? Is your grandmother Jewish? And go through you know, the whole you know, 21 questions. And I had, I had just walked in you know, a few minutes before. And there was a very marked difference of what I observed walking into a place like 770 versus um, a Catholic church I grew up going to. And when I grew up going to church, especially how a Catholic church, most of them are, are, are modeled, they're very cathedral type uh, buildings with very, very high ceilings, the red velvet and all the wood and all the, you know, the stone statues and everything. And the lights are kept very dim and the stained glass doesn't really let any natural light in. And it's a very, you know, kind of a somber atmosphere. And I always went there and go there for mass for one hour and, and you leave, you know, it's kind of is what it is. I walk into 770, which is definitely not whatever your local Chabad house looks like, um, even if your Chabad house is not the fanciest one. 770 is physically, it's not the most beautiful place. It doesn't, it's actually kind of dilapidated. It's kind of run down. Um, it's not a very, it's actually even, even like in a basement kind of. It's huge, but it's like a little bit underground. So there's also no light getting in there. But when I walked in, you could just feel the vibrancy of the place. You could feel how the place is alive. And just anyone that walks in could tell that this is a place of community. This is a place where all these people come to gather and that this is a place that's very important to their life. I remember in 10th grade, 
religion class that year. The course was called Sacred Scriptures. And when we focused on that year, we actually learned a lot of things about Judaism. I think the whole point of that course was to learn about the life and times of, of Jesus and, and what was his life, like what was it like when he lived in, in Israel and everything. So we learned about Jewish holidays and one, for maybe a week or so, we learned about the temple. So we learned twice there stood the holy temple in Jerusalem and we learned about the different parts of the temple and we learned about the service of the, the priest and the high priest and the Levites and, and, and what have you. And I remember at the end of that unit, our uh, religion teacher, he says to the class that our, our church, our parish, is the temple of today. And I remember at the time thinking, and I feel like probably my friends probably agreed, it's kind of a dumb comparison. Like, like I get it, our, our church is, is our place of worship, it's where we go to pray and where we try to connect with God or whatever. But you have this like regal edifice that the Jews built and, and their whole life was centered around this place. And they, they came there for the holidays and they brought their sacrifices there. And they still go and pray by like the last wall that's standing there. And they still, wherever they are in the world, every time they pray, they pray towards the direction of that place. And, and like, come on, our church is not really comparable. Even if it's holy, it's not, it's not comparable. I walked into 770 and, and I actually I thought, I thought about, this was two years after I had this, this, uh, this lesson. And I remember thinking, wow, they really did it here. If our place of worship is supposed to mirror the Holy Temple of Jerusalem, they really did it here. You could just tell, you can feel when you walk into the place, the atmosphere, what it's like. And I'm just kind of looking around and observing what's going on. And now this guy is pulling out this little velvet bag and he pulls out these little black contraptions and he starts rolling up my sleeve. And he doesn't even ask, he just starts rolling up my sleeve. And now I'm like taking in everything a little more, you know, the minutiae, you know, what's going on. And I see everyone, is like a thousand people around me. Everyone has this leather strap and this black box on their head and everyone's wrapped in this sheet with strings and they're all shaking this way and that way and muttering these gibberish words. And now I'm like, okay, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a little bit strange. And, you know, I thought I walked into some type of twilight zone, you know. But luckily there was like, you know, the exit signs, you know, it has the, the exit signs are there. So I'll do what this Jew wants and then back to reality. Little did, little did I know. But this guy puts this thing on my arm and he says, okay, repeat after me. So he starts to say the words, Baruch, Atah. And I thought, hey, hold up a second, I, I know this. These are the words that we sing when we light the menorah every year. I've been doing this every year. I, I know these words. But it wasn't just about like the familiarity with like, okay, I could say these words on my own. There was something that made me feel like, hey, wait a second, this is mine. This is something of me. This is, this is, a, this is, this is my something. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was mine. And I began to say the, the, the blessing, the bracha on my own. I said the wrong blessing because I said, l'hadlik ner shel Hanukkah. And, uh, and uh, you know, I said Shema for the first time in my life. And when I finished saying Shema, I actually read through in an English, in an English sitter, English prayer book. And I read all the way through till the word truth. And when I said that word, I had what I could best describe as maybe like a flash of a lot of things in my life. And I started to recognize how from a young age that whatever certain event happened in my life led directly to another occurrence. And that affected me to make some decision that led directly to like another, another step in life. And I saw especially the last few months of my life that no matter what I was choosing, no matter what I was deciding, all of these things like had to happen. All of these occurrences that to me were like, each one was worse than the last. Getting kicked out of school, I thought my life was over. Getting 
you know, kicked out of my parents' house in my apartment and fired from my job. And, and then I got in a car, just decided to drive. I was 18 year old. I was, I was a kid, you know, with like, like $2,000. Somehow I'm going to get around the country. And I wind up in New York, even though I want to go to California. And I just saw how that night I was in Starbucks. It was the night before I was in Starbucks. I met this Jewish kid, tells me to come here. And I saw how you know, all the puzzle pieces were falling into place. No matter what it is I wanted to do, no matter what I was trying to choose, everything was somehow pushing for me to be here. And not that this was like the pinnacle moment of my life. There was obviously much greater things. I met my wife. I have children. You know, I have, you know, I, I, I feel very privileged to be a teacher. There was much greater things that happened to me after, much higher points in my life. But just that I had this realization that everything in life is divine providence. Something I was familiar with growing up. We learned about divine providence, uh, maybe in a very superficial way, but we were always taught everything happens for a reason. God controls everything. Uh, I don't know. And it just always sounded like mumble jumble to me, another silly religious thing that, that we uh, are supposed to believe in. But in that moment, it couldn't hit me harder in the face. And that led me to have the much stronger notion, which was that I'm a Jew, whatever that means. And I want to do right now whatever a Jew is supposed to do. No, I have no, I have no clue. <laughs> Where do I go to find out how do I start to live like a Jew? I, I'm not sure. Happened to be I was in the right place. So this young man who had put on tefillin with me, he says to me, would you like to go to yeshiva? <laughs> now I look at him and I'm like, in my mind I'm thinking, I don't know what that is. But I say, I have one question for you. Is a Jew supposed to go to that uh, the place you just mentioned? He says, oh, betach, of course, every Jew has to go to yeshiva, no question. I said, all right, let's go. So he walks me half a block away from 770, where there's a very, there's a very special yeshiva, a school for young men, young in, uh, in, in spiritual years, we'll say, where men who, who grew up, whether 18, 28, 38, 48, men who grew up maybe not in an observant home, maybe didn't grow up with a formal Jewish education, maybe had more or less, some type of observance, less observance. And now they're at a point in their life where they want to learn more. They want to connect more. They want to delve into and explore their Jewish identity. Maybe they want to learn Hasidic teachings or they want to learn from the Talmud, whatever it might be. Maybe they want to come and just experience a week or two weeks or a month or a year in just totally immersed in Judaism. Um, this was actually the first of its kind, first school of its kind in the world. So I, I walked down the street. First thing I see is a big sign that says rabbinical seminary. And the word seminary for me was very scary because to me seminary is where the priests go and they don't get married. And uh, I said, okay, well, at, least, at least see what's going on here. Luckily for me, it was, it was actually, it was, they were serving breakfast. So I got to have real food for the first time in, in a while. And afterwards, there's a, someone tells me there's a class in the Talmud. I don't even have a clue what that even means. So I sit down in this beginner's class of the Talmud. The rabbi comes in and he says, oh, we have a new face, what's, uh, what's your name? So I said, oh, hi, rabbi, my, my name is Matt. And he says, no, 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 your Jewish name, of course. I, said, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what you're talking about, my full name is Matthew, it, it's a, it comes from Hebrew. So he says, uh, no, you know, like, like your Hebrew name, you know, when you were born by, by your brismila, you got a Jewish name, and I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. So he says, okay, no problem, how's your, how's your Hebrew? So I said, ah, I don't know. I don't know anything. He says, no problem. He gives me an English translation of that, of that uh, you know, volume of the Talmud they were learning. That, the content of, of the discussion, that particular discussion in the Talmud was like, 
I couldn't have the first inkling of why this was even being discussed. It seemed so foreign, so unrelatable, so like old and like, but it was, certain, it was a certain intrigue of this kind of back and forth between the different academies and schools of thought, the different rabbis, and trying to bring proofs from, from verses in the Torah and trying to bring stories to prove it and getting sidetracked and you know, trying to then bring it back together. It, it was intriguing. I sit down with the, with the rabbi who taught the class afterwards, and he asked, how'd you get here? What's going on? I said, I don't know. I was in Starbucks last night. This guy told me to go to, go to that synagogue on the corner, and I don't, I don't know. I leave the yeshiva a few hours later after sitting in a few classes and also getting lunch, which was you know, maybe the, the main point for me at the time, and just kind of like reinvigorated to continue my journey. I was now really, I was like, okay, cool. Like, this is what I set out to do. I found out I'm a Jew. I'm going to do whatever five things I know about Judaism. I'll cover my head. I won't eat pork or whatever like things I might have happened to know. And uh, I'm gonna, I got to get some cash. I got to find a way to get my car and I'll continue my journey. I'm like, you know, I felt excited that I'm finally like getting to that point of, of achieving what I left my hometown to do. That night I need somewhere to sleep. So I, I go to another Starbucks. There's, there's quite a few of them in, in New York. And I'm sitting in the Starbucks and I'm thinking, you know what? Like I have to just call my parents. I have to just call them and tell them, uh, you know, I'm stuck and I'm stranded and, and I need some help. But I'm, I am still, you know, a, a, a stubborn teenager. And even in the situation I was in, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the one to give in first. I'm going to be the one to initiate. I'm going to be the one to apologize. They have to apologize to me. They're the ones that screwed me up and made me this way. They weren't, of course. Now, looking back, I see that. I'm about to ask the guy next to me for a little bit of change so I can go to a payphone. When in the door where I'm sitting, I could see the door. In the door walks young man and woman, maybe in the early 20s. This man has a, has a beard, he has a black hat. This young lady is dressed modestly. And I right away recognize these are Jewish people. A day before, I'd have no idea these are Jews. I would have no idea that these are Jewish people. I spent like five hours in, in, you know, in, in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, a Jewish neighborhood. Now I'm an expert on how Jews look. So as if that's what every Jew looks like. I mean, I never met Jews, so what do I know? They sit at the table right next to me. So I take off uh, a cap, I had a Phillies baseball cap on, and I, cause I was still wearing this uh, kippah, this yarmulke I was given. I want them to see I'm, I'm part of the tribe, you know? See if they'll take the bait. And I thought like, isn't the whole thing Jews are like a family? Isn't that like a thing, you know? The, but they're not, you know, they're not talking to me. So at some point I just kind of reach over, interrupt their, their conversation. Um, and I say, hey, I said, uh, shalom. And this guy's like, alechem shalom, was machst du? And I said, oh, you know, um, I did this thing for the first time. You know this thing? I did this thing for the first time today. He says, wow, mazel tov and your bar mitzvah. Like right in the Starbucks, mazel tov and your bar mitzvah. And I was like, oh, phew, you know. And he's like, how did you come to have your bar mitzvah today? I wasn't really exactly sure what he meant, but I told him, you know, the, the cliff notes of, of my life. Not as polished as I might be telling it now. And certainly not with as many details. And he says, you know what, I have just one question for you, after I tell him what's going on. He says, where are you spending the night? So I said, I, I motioned like this, I said, I'm, uh, I'm checked in for the night already. He said, no, 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 no. You're a Jew, you're a human being, let me take care of you. So this young man and young woman were, were on what we call a shidduch date. You know, they were, you know? They were, you know, this is a young rabbinical student and uh, this young lady, and they were, you know, someone must have thought they, would, they might have some chemistry, they might like each other, and, you know, they're having a date where they're like, 
you know, this is one of maybe like, you know, six to eight dates that they're like trying to figure out, like, is this someone I would want to raise my kids with? Is this someone that I can see being my lifelong partner? Is this someone who I share values with? Is this someone that's going the same direction in life as me? You know, it's not so frivolous. You have a shidduch date. It's, you know, you get down to business. And I'm just derailing this whole conference, this whole thing. They didn't get engaged in the end. Um, maybe because the next moment this guy invites me to like to come spend the night in his dorm. But um, basically he says, and the odds of this, you know, you imagine we're in New York. All the yeshivas, all the rabbinical schools, all the Jewish areas that someone could be living. Crown Heights, the Chabad neighborhood is not the only one. There's so many places in New York he could have been from or he could have been learning. And he tells me that he's a rabbinical student in 770. And that he has, a, he has a dorm room right around the corner where all the rabbinical students stay. And uh, he says, come, I spend the night in my dorm. I could, for one night, I could give you, a, give you a bed to sleep in. So it wasn't before. First, they took me to a kosher restaurant to get, to get some food. And afterwards, we drove back to, uh, to Brooklyn, to Crown Heights. And we dropped this young lady off at her home. And um, so just people who know, no, that's why they're laughing. It's... And we go to the, to the rabbinical dorm, where I, which is a whole other story. Some of the rabbis, some of the rabbis here might know a little bit. And um, the next morning, the next morning I go back to this school I was at the day before. I thought, I might as well, I'm here, I might as well spend another day learning. And I go back to this yeshiva uh, for young men, you know, like, like myself and very much unlike myself. Everyone had an interesting story. And I learn a little more and still not really catching on to what anyone's talking about really, but it's interesting. And, uh, and I felt at home, you know, I felt like, I felt like I'm, I'm among people that, that are me, people that are my family. And as foreign as it, all, as it all was, and as strange as a lot of it was, I just felt like, like this is my people. Like, this, this, is where, this is where I should have been from the day I was born. This is, where, this is where I'm supposed to be. So I started learning the yeshiva, and I'm attending the classes, and um, I end up, I, you know, I, I take up a living there, and I'm, I'm living in the dorm. Um, basically, I just found like a, you know I found an empty bed in one of the dorm rooms and started sleeping there. And at some point, the administration, you know, approaches me and they're like, "Hey, someone said you're just like crashing our dorm. Like, you're welcome to apply. You know, just financial aid if you need. You know, like maybe we could speak to your parents. You know, like, you know, I had to break the news to them that I don't speak to my parents. But thank God, pretty quickly we got things under wrapped and, and they were very, very kind, very caring people, and they did help me initiate a. Um, a relationship with my parents again, and I started speaking to my mother, who was very shocked that I was in a yeshiva, but very happy. I remember the first time I spoke to my mother, she was calling me. She had paid my cell phone bill to open up the, to reopen the line, and then she's calling me, and for a few days, and I didn't want to pick up. And eventually, I decided I have to, you know, I'll pick up, I'll answer, and I'll tell her where I'm at, and it was, this was going to be my first Shabbos. Now, mind you, I don't really have a clue what Shabbos is, but someone told me, like, try to get, like, a taste of Shabbos. Don't use your cell phone for a day or whatever. So I thought, oh, this is a good time to answer. I'll tell my mom that it's almost Shabbos. She doesn't really know what that is, but I'll be able to give a, it's some type of excuse. It's a good Jewish excuse that, like, I can't talk, you know? And at least I'll tell her that I'm okay. So I pick up, I'm like, hey, what's up, mom? And as if, like, we spoke the day before. It's really been several months since we spoke. And my mother says, Matthew, Devlin, where are you? We're so worried. Please just come home. Forget about everything. I said, no, mom, don't worry about me. I'm in yeshiva. Everything's fine. <laughs> Not, that's when most mothers will get worried, right? So I said, mom, do you know what yeshiva is? She's like, yeah, I know what yeshiva. I'm Jewish. I know what yeshiva is. It's like, well, what kind of yeshiva? What do you mean you're in yeshiva? 
She said, oh, it, it's Chabad. Do you know what that is? She's like, yeah, I'm a Jew. I know what Chabad is. So the next thing my mother says, oh, how are you? How, what's going on? Are you okay? Like, I haven't spoken to you in three months. She says, wait a second, it's Shabbos. Uh, how are you on your phone? Because this was like literally like this was like right before sundown. Like this was like, you know, the last moments you could really be like on your phone. So I'm just like, I don't even know how I'm supposed to even react to that. I don't really know what Shabbos is. I assume my mother doesn't know, but now she's telling me and I'm like, she's like, oh, it's okay, it's okay. Call me back, call me back tomorrow night. So I spoke to my mother after Shabbos and she tells me that she grew up in what she calls a traditional home. My mother grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia where her family kept kosher, and they kept some semblance of Shabbos when she was a kid. And just as she was growing up and, and you know, just things happened and fell, you know, Judaism kind of fell by the wayside. But she grew up, you know, in a, in a very, very Jewish home, very traditional, um, observant to a certain point. So for my mother, it was very exciting. She was very proud, very happy. I was in yeshiva from all the places I could have wound up, you know, for her estranged son. It was, it was very nice for her. She was very supportive. My father, not so much. My father later remarked to National Geographic uh, when I, I was featured on a documentary called Only for God, Inside Hasidism. You can find it on YouTube. They asked him, what, what did you think when your son first began to attend yeshiva, first became, you know, observant? So my father says, you know, I, I think at a time in my son's life when he was very vulnerable, a God-fearing people took him in, and then he kind of trails off his trying to find something nice to say, you know. It wasn't really his favorite thing. And he goes on to then say, he says, you know, but, you know, in, in, in Catholic, uh, you know, dogma, you know, baptism leaves an indelible mark on the soul. And so, you know, he doesn't really want to say, but because he's trying to be kind to documentaries about Judaism. But he means like, okay, at least, at least he still was baptized, so there's still hope for him, you know. Um, it took a while for my father to come around, but later, later, much later, he did. I spent about, I'd say about four or five months in yeshiva, total turnaround in my life. Not just as a Jew, not just, you know, I became observant and I learned more about our traditions, our people, our faith, our religion, keeping kosher, keeping Shabbos. But just as a person, as a human being, I became much more of a mensch. I became someone that I felt, you know, I could be proud of who I was, you know, a good, you know, uh, a good, good citizen, you know. At a certain point, it began to really weigh on me all these lifestyle changes I made. You know, I was, from all the type of people I could have been, my personality as a teenager, I was the, I was the rebel. I was the one who was like, you know, you know, fight the power, fight the rules, go against, you know, the norms. Like, and now, you know, I'm like noticing I took upon myself all these rules, all these laws, all these things I have to do every day. Like, and I started feeling like, I don't know, is this, this really me? Is this really who I am? And, you know, when that kind of initial excitement wore off of discovering who I was as a Jew, I felt like, you know, I, I don't think this is for me, at least not now, it's not for me. I spoke to my parents and they, they agreed that I can move back home. A few stipulations, I have to finish school, to go to college, I have to have a job, normal, normal expectations, can't, can't use or drink. So I told my parents, of course, that's what I want. Uh, that's what I want in life. I, if I learned anything in yeshiva, I want to turn my life around and be a, you know, be a good person. So I, I, I left yeshiva, I moved back home, totally dropped all observance. I was still very proud to be a Jew. That, that I can say, I was very, very proud to be a Jew. Um, and my father was trying to like encourage me to go to, to mass on Sundays, and I was like, no. And he's like, well, you're not doing anything in, in your religion. And I said, yeah, but 
I'm still I'm a Jew. I can't I can't go to I can't go there. I can't go to the church. I was living at home for about maybe a month or so, maybe six weeks, when I kind of violated the, the rules of my parents and they were on vacation. I threw a big party at my house and my parents discovered. I thought I, I thought I thought I was good. I thought I cleaned up every beer can, every every, you know, every piece of evidence of everything. And whatever one of my neighbors told my parents. So my parents were pretty upset about it and Long story short, I was now living in my house again, my parents' house again. So now I began to like couch surf, as I call it. I was a few nights this friend's couch, a few nights this friend's guest house, this friend's basement, this friend's guest room, you know, just kind of place to place. It's a real haze to me. I don't really remember the next couple weeks of my life. It was my birthday at the end of July. I turned 19. And a few days later, I was with a friend skateboarding. We were longboarding, downhill skateboarding. And we had one, one of these longboards, one of these skateboards. And so what we were doing was we were taking turns. We, one of us was in the car driving behind, and the other person was on the skateboard. And we'd go down this, it was in a neighborhood with a big series of hills. So to walk all the way back up was like another like 20 minutes every time. So we would just drive back up every time. So one particular run, it was my turn on the skateboard. And I was going around a, 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 a very sharp curve doing about 35 miles per hour which is why I explained the whole thing about the car, just so you get a, an idea of it. And going around that, that, that curve, which I, I have no recollection of this, I fell. I wasn't wearing a helmet or, or any protective gear, and I, I fractured my skull. So in the moment, I was, I was sitting there with the, the pool of blood around my head. My friend slams on the brakes. He gets out. He runs over to me. He said he kind of started screaming my name, and he was shaking me a little bit, and I was just fading in and out of consciousness. So this friend of mine, who really, thank God, he saved my life, but he did, he did kind of a stupid thing. Um, he decided that he'll just drive me to the hospital. The hospital was like five minutes away. So he thought that he'll just he'll put me in the car and he'll drive me to the hospital. He's going to call 911 to dispatch an ambulance. Who knows where it's going to come from? And obviously, we were kids. Like, you don't really know if you have a head, someone has a head injury, God forbid, you know, just to check the airways that they're breathing and not to actually move the person. But... <laughs> my friend put me in the back seat of his car and he's going through red lights and stop signs and just like rushing, rushing, rushing to the hospital. Pulls up to the ER, runs inside frantic. They come out with a stretcher and they, they take me into the hospital and um, they did an MRI or some type of scan and they ended up putting me into a medically induced coma. My brain was swelling and ultimately they called my father. The, they got a hold of my father and told him that he should bring in his family because uh, possibly I have only 24 hours to live. Obviously, I mean, obviously it was wrong, so I can like not be so dramatic because I, I did live. But that, that's, they said 24 hours. My father wanted to have a priest come in to do, they call the last rites. And my mother said, she said no, she said he's a Jew. And, um, she ended up calling the yeshiva I had learned and asking them if, if they would say the Tehillim, if they would say the Psalms on my behalf, which is what we do when, when, whenever a Jew is in need of anything, any situation. So obviously I lived, but it wasn't for another day. Another day they said maybe, maybe not another 24 hours. The next day then they said I would live, but I would have to relearn to walk. I would have to do a lot of speech therapy. I would have to go to a neuropsychologist to, you know, rewire certain types of, you know, thought processes. And, you know, 
a lot of, you know, a, lo a long road to recovery. I ended up spending uh, less than six days in the hospital. And during that time, I was walking already with help, but that was already above and beyond what they thought would happen. I was released to go to a rehabilitation center where I was supposed to like relearn to walk, but I was like already walking. So I spent like less than a week there also. I went to the speech therapist, and the speech therapist told me that, you know, like everything's fine, is, you know, you don't have to be here. I went to the neuropsychologist, did a series of tests, you know, verbal and written, and some things on the computer. And he also told me, totally, everything's fine, totally normal, don't, don't have to get any type of therapy. I had headaches for like a month. I had a good prescription for that. And that was my mother kept under lock and key. I, of course, my parents did let me move back in again, of course, they took care of me. Um, I got to even have a TV in my bedroom, which, which like, no one of my siblings, we never had TVs in our bedroom, so that was like, that was nice, on bed rest. And um, this was now the end of the summer, and obviously after going through such an experience, I was just really thinking about, like, what am I doing here in this world, you know? And even at the time, I actually didn't know the gravity of the situation. It was really only later that, that someone told me. But I still realized something very serious had happened, you know? I have this vague memory of, of skateboarding, and then the next thing I know it, I'm like, I'm laying in a hospital bed with all kinds of, you know, IVs and, and thing machines attached to me. You know, I, I knew something very serious had happened. And I'm just really thinking about, like, what am I doing here in this world? as a Jew, as a human, like, 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 like well, I, I'm bringing myself down, I'm bringing everyone down around me, when in fact, really, I'm, I'm here to do good, I'm here with a purpose, I'm here with a mission, and it's not to take people down, it's, it's to have this corner of the world that I was entrusted with, and to try to build that place up, you know, in any way that I can. And I started thinking, you know, maybe I should, uh, you know, I should go to, I should go somewhere for, for the high holidays. So I find out the, the closest Chabad house, which was, you know, which is about, I don't know, maybe about 45 minutes from home. And I go there for, for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It was a, a Chabad on campus at Franklin and Marshall College. And I was going there every Shabbos. So I started keeping Shabbos. The Chabad rabbi encouraged me to start keeping kosher. And I, I was back in high school at that point. I finished, I finished out my senior year in public school, uh, wearing tzitzes and a yarmulke and everything. And... At that point, when I finished high school, I really had two options. I had gotten into college uh, in, in Lancaster by the Shliach, by the Chabad house, and I even had a job set up, and I had living arrangements. And I just kind of had a, a desire that I want to go back to yeshiva. Maybe I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go to university after. In my family, it was like expected. Everyone has to go to university. There's no, like, no ifs, ands, or buts. You have to go to college after high school. So I tell my mother my plan that I think I want to go to, back to yeshiva. She says, of course, no problem. It sounds, she, you know, good plan. She says, there's only one condition. She said, you have to be the one to tell your father. So my father, yeshiva already is not liking it. Not going to college for my father was like, can't go, you know, father's a doctor. He's, he's very, he's an academic, you know, type of person. So I tell my father, I remember, I, I remember I walked up to him. I said, dad, I'm going back to yeshiva. And I just walked away from him. I was like, I, I'm not even like, I'm not standing here for a conversation. I'm just, you know. So... I literally just packed up my bags and went to yeshiva the next day. And I ended up learning for five years in yeshiva. I, I did not end up going back to university. Um, although five years in yeshiva is pretty, pretty intense learning. And during that time, I received my, you know, my rabbinical ordination. And then finally, in that last year of learning, when I was a student in 770, where it all started, 
I was introduced to my wife by some mutual friends thought that we would hit it off. Um, and I guess we did, and I, th I think we still are. Um, and now uh, eight years, we're now married eight years, with four beautiful children. And we eventually did make it to California. At a certain point, um, after we were married for, for a short while, we had the opportunity to be the Chabad emissaries at uh, University of California, Riverside. And so we were there for about two years, and then we relocated here to Florida, where my, my wife grew up. And I have the, the great privilege to, to be a teacher. I teach fourth grade boys. And it's just an unbelievable, unbelievable privilege to be the one who's so involved and so in charge of a child's, not just education, but their upbringing, right? We use the word chinuch in Hebrew. It's not really just education. It's really the entire upbringing of a child. And, you know, a lot of kids, they spend more, more hours of the day with their teacher than they might with their parents, right? They sit there for hours with the same teacher, and you're a very, very big influence in their life. And I realized when I first started teaching, I was teaching first grade. And inevitably, there's kids that call me Tati. Accidentally, instead of Rebbe, they say Tati. They say, Dad, you know, Daddy, Father. And then you get to the point where once or twice, you have a kid even says, Mommy. And honestly, you realize, ah, you, real, you realize the effect you're having on a kid. When a young child mistakenly calls, calls your teacher with a beard, Mommy, you know. Oh, but there's something, there's something to it, you know, when you realize the profound effect that you have, the influence you have on a child's life, you know, when they speak to you that way. And, you know, over the years, things built up really well with, with my, you know, with my father, as I had hinted to before. It took a little while, but over time, he began to become more appreciative of, of the lifestyle I was living. I think there was a lot to it. I think that at a certain point, he appreciated the fact that I was still religious in some way. Many of my siblings maybe identify as Catholic in name, but aren't really so involved in the church anymore. And here I was trying to, you know, trying to be a person of faith, trying to live, you know, as a God-fearing person and trying to really follow to a T the, the letter of the law, the spirit of the law, and trying to be a good person, you know, really with most of the same, you know, values that my father holds dearly as a, as a devout Catholic. And, you know, also there was the kind of academic side to it this lifelong pursuit of learning that we value as Jews that you don't really find so much in another kind of religious-based culture, if you will, that learning Torah is really an infinite thing, just learning with the commentaries and the super commentaries, and, and it's really never, never ending the amount of knowledge, the depth and breadth of our teachings as Jews and their viewpoints, and it's, it's something that he, began, he, he came to really appreciate. And over time, you know, it got to the point when, you know, a lot of people asked, did my father go to my wedding? which to me is always like, like, yes, my father went to my wedding. He came to my wedding, none of that, but he was one of the happiest, one of the proudest people. You could see the, the twinkle in his eye. Might have also have been from all the l'chaim, but um, and never, my father's not like, a, he's not a drinker. We, we never had alcohol in the house. It was like, it's not a thing. And until a few of my siblings were over 21, and he came for Fourth of July barbecue with you know, a six-pack, never saw my father drink alcohol. Um, and he happens to be pretty good at it, I saw by my wedding. Um, <laughs> but... My father was there and definitely became very, very proud of the person I am and um, definitely has a very loving, deep connection with, with my children. And um, they're always, they always want to call him and speak to him. And um, Baruch Hashem. It's, it's, it's a beautiful, it's a blessing. It's a beautiful thing to have such a connection, regardless of whether Jewish or not Jewish, but to have the special connection that my, both my parents really have with my kids as the grandparents is very special. My siblings, I'll just say now because people end up asking, my siblings... Each one kind of in their own way over time became uh, closer to their roots as a Jew. 
before this whole journey of mine began, none of us would really have affiliated or called ourselves Jews. You know, even there were times when people would tell us, oh, so you're half Jewish, half Catholic. And our response was always, it can't be half a religion. Like we were baptized, so we're Catholic. You're not born a religion. That's not how it works. Of course, as a Jew, we know that is how it works. We are born, we are born into our Judaism. Regardless of the framework of how we live our Judaism, we know that's, we're, born, we're born a Jew. So at a minimum, my siblings started to have that notion that there is a Jewishness to them. They're not really sure what that means or what do they do with that, but they do have this certain uh, Jewishness to them. As the years went on, each one kind of took on a certain mitzvah or mitzvahs or, or something that they found meaningful. A big, a big part of it was actually Hanukkah. And I have to say it was actually because of my son. My son, Mendel, um, who is now seven years old. This was about three years ago. I remember he was, he was four. And about a month before Hanukkah, he says to me, he says, Tate, you know, my cousins, they don't really know about Judaism, so I have to be responsible for them. So I want to make sure they celebrate Hanukkah. And I'm like, okay, what do you want to do? For me, I was always very hands-off. I never wanted my siblings to feel like I'm preaching to them or proselytizing. You know, I was always very hands-off and just kind of, you know, live and let live. And maybe when they see the things I do or maybe I share a little thought with them once in a while, it might inspire them. And some of them it did a little more here and there. So he says, I want to send all my cousins a menorah. I said, okay. Well, myself, I would never do it. If I tell them it's from Mendel, he's sending his cousins, you know, a nice little gift. Yeah, they would be down with that, you know. It's, they're familiar with Hanukkah. They still go home to celebrate Hanukkah once or twice, you know, each year with my, with my mother. So we box up some menorahs, the little metal ones, you know, all the Chabad houses give out with the, with the wax can, the colorful candles. And they send out a little package with some dreidels and chocolate gelt. And nowadays make all kind of little, you know, Hanukkah little toys and stuff. And my siblings, they were so receptive. They're like, wow, tell Mendel, thank you so much. Our kids are so happy. And I thought, okay, let's see if they actually light it. Every night of Hanukkah that year, I'm getting pictures. All my siblings that already have their own homes, their own families, you know, married to non-Jews. But my sis mostly it's my sisters. I, I have seven sisters. And many of them have kids. And I get these pictures that look, to me, in one way are very familiar. They have up there on the mantle in the dining room, there's a menorah, and the Christmas stockings are hanging right underneath. Maybe you can see the tree in the corner. Right? Very, it looks just like my home. The difference is, for me, it was, well, we're, 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 we're helping mom. We're being respectful of mom's traditions. For my nieces and nephews, it's maybe confusing to them, but it's, wait a second, why are we celebrating it here? We're not celebrating at, at, grand, at grandma's house. We're celebrating here in our house. So it's something about us. It's something about our mother. It's something about it's who we are. So it was a very, very big change when, when because of my four-year-old son and the person he is to suggest to them. And then it became every yumtiv, every Jewish holiday, we're like sending them a little care package for his cousins to the point that they have some type of, even if minor, but for many of the holidays, they have a certain minor observance that they all do, um, all because they feel themselves now to have a certain Jewish heritage. And of course, they have to balance it with what are we? We still go to church on Christmas and Easter, but then, you know, but thank God it's that little, you know, that one little step at a time that, uh, that can change a whole, change a whole life, change a whole world. Um, I, I just want to say, just to finish off, because they came with me already like five minutes ago with the five-minute uh, five warning sign uh, in the back, that just to touch on one point that I really want to bring out, which is the whole idea of divine providence. We call hashkacha pratis in Hebrew. And I mentioned earlier that I had a moment where I really felt that divine providence was, was something applicable, it was real, it was something that really 
we see it in our lives. And it took time for me to recognize this, but I realized there's a lot of things that divine providence isn't. To say that my situation that I was in, that whole thing where I was in the right, I was kicked out of this and I was in the right place, I was in this Starbucks, I met this kid, I went to the synagogue, all these right things, right time, happenstance, good luck, whatever, mazel you want to call it. To say that's what divine providence is, that I ended up finding myself or my true whatever, that's just a feel-good story. That's not, that's not what divine providence is. Because as much as it was divine providence for me, that I had this whole life-changing event that I went through, and then again, this whole accident I went through that then also changed my whole life, it was just as much divine providence for everyone on the other side of the table. When I met this kid, Mendy, 16-year-old boy from a, from, a, from a religious Jewish home, hanging out with his girlfriend in Starbucks in the middle of the night, that he decides, from all the people I could have met, I met a kid who's not even religious anymore because he's trying to run away from whatever in life. And he's the one that tells me, to go to, uh, to this synagogue, big synagogue in Brooklyn, it was just as much divine providence for him. It didn't change his life. Nothing changed. There was no big aha moment for him. His life went on the same way. He continued to leave observance. He went on to learn at Oxford University. He's an extremely, extremely bright, bright young man. And to this day, he's not observant. His life didn't really change because of that occurrence. But that occurrence was divine providence for him. And he recognized in the moment there was something he could do for this person. When I was in 770 the next day, the guy that put on the film with me, he put on the film with hundreds, maybe thousands of people. It didn't change his life. But he recognized in the moment there was divine providence. There was a reason that he was speaking to this kid with long hair and ripped jeans. And so on and so forth with all the people I ran into. Every single one of them, whether they helped me out with my Judaism or they were just helping me to get a meal, whatever it was in all aspects of who we are, whether it was, we say, begashmias or beruchnias, whether it was a physical good deed or it was something spiritual, all these people recognize that every waking moment is divine providence. Every person we speak to, every person we run into, every image that we see, wherever we are, every moment is divine providence. And the question is, it's not about having a ha-ha moment where my whole life changes. It's about what am I doing with those occurrences that I see? What am I doing when I met this person in store at the supermarket that I didn't see in a while? What about this coworker that I never spoke to that I started a relationship with? Why did all of that happen? What am I doing for that person? What am I here for? What mitzvah can I do for that other person? And when you do that, you do end up changing a person's life because we see that my life was changed. And not only that, but went on to change others, the ripple effect that occurs with all of my students, with my family, with my siblings, my parents, my mother now, he's really rushing me along here. My mother now, by the way, my mother now who now keeps a kosher home, my parents did, uh, during this time, did uh, divorce at a certain point. And when my mother moved into her own home, she now keeps a kosher home. She lights Shabbos candles. She attends, uh, she attends a synagogue now. And she has, she's getting ready to put up her sukkah, which my non-Jewish brother-in-law, who's the handy one, is going to construct for her. And, and that's what happens. It's that ripple effect. So when we reach out to that one person, when we recognize every day the divine province in just the everyday meetings we have with people, stranger or friend, we can change the entire world. L'chaim. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.